your help. Now, 2008 was a massive economic crisis, a global economic crisis. I'm sure uh, we remember a bit. We still remember it. We're still feeling something of the impact of it. Uh, at the time, the Times newspaper ran an article, I think it was a headline article, uh, which said, The Age of Uncertainty. And it was the age of uncertainty. The foundations were shaken. Uh, and the impact was, was really quite devastating. Uh, at the time, there was a, a kind of a tragic number of suicides among those who had been really wealthy and had lost everything. Uh, and in some ways, that is what happens when these crises hit. But lives get shaken right to the foundations, and sadly, often the foundations are found wanting. And I guess that, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if, if the foundation of your life is your wealth, if, if you're seeking your life in the abundance of your possessions, if that gets taken, if you lose that, well, you've lost everything. And all of us build our lives on something. Uh, and it's something that we think is secure. It's some kind of bedrock. We're building our lives on this bedrock. Uh, and then when a crisis comes, we discover how solid the bedrock really is. It's Jesus' parable about the, the two men building their houses, one on the rock and one on the sand. Those houses, they look secure, they look fine, they look very similar until the storm comes. Now, I wonder if you know what is the bedrock of your life. What are you building it all upon? When you dig down, even under the foundation, what is upholding it all? What's supporting everything that you're doing? And do you know how secure it is? Uh, we're back in Isaiah today. There's a little bit more time since we're in Isaiah. Uh, we're in Isaiah today. We're not going to be back in Isaiah until September. Um, uh, but the message of Isaiah, as we have seen, is, is quite simple. It's trust the Lord. Very easy to say. Uh, quite difficult to actually do, isn't it? Uh, what we've seen so far in Isaiah is in chapter 1, there's something of an introduction. We get some of the major themes of Isaiah's preaching in chapter 1. Then chapters 2 to 12 are a distinct section. And that section 2 to 12 um, can be divided into two halves. Uh, in chapters 2 to 5, it seems that Isaiah is, is speaking to the people under the reign of King Uzziah. And we'll hear more about Uzziah today. And that's when it's set. And then chapters 7 to 12 seem to be set in the period after Uzziah, when Ahaz was king in Jerusalem, and other things were going on. And chapter 6, where we are today, is the pillar point, the center point. Um, it's, it's a massive, important um, moment in, not just in this section of Isaiah, but in the whole of Isaiah. What does it say? Well, it begins, I think, with the problem of security. So you see there in verse 1, you get kind of a little historical marker, putting it about 739 BC. It is the year that King Uzziah died, who was king in Jerusalem. It's a massive national crisis when Uzziah dies. He's, he's been king for ages. 52 years has been his reign, and it's been a time of great prosperity and success. The country has expanded militarily, economically. It's had these great building projects. Um, it's been a good time, the best of times, really, under the reign of Uzziah. Now what we've seen, though, in Isaiah's messages, especially in chapters 2 and 3, that this reign of Uzziah has fostered a culture of self-reliance. 
Uh, in, in this time, people are finding their security and the stability and prosperity of their society. But now the king dies, at the death of the king, everything gets thrown up into the air. And nobody knows how it's going to land. And when we follow history forward, we'll see that it, it doesn't land very well at all. Uh, but during this period, up to the death of Isaiah, there, there was this lie that was going around in the society. In some ways, it's the same kind of lie that we hear today. Now, the world in which we live is telling us constantly that this world is all that there is. It's all that you have, so you have to find your purpose and your meaning and your security in the now, in what you have in front of you, because that's all there is. And people can happily live that illusion for a time, to build the houses on the sand. Life consists in the abundance of our possessions, and we accumulate possessions, and it all feels very nice, and and, and, and life is safe because we, we believe this lie that we can find in ourselves what we need to be able to thrive. Then the crisis comes. The storm blows in and we get blindsided and shaken and realise everything we relied on is not as stable as we thought. The death of King Uzziah. A bit of contrast in Isaiah 1, in Isaiah 6, 1 is... In contrast to the passing of Isaiah and all the instability that comes, Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord. And in this chapter we have this revelation given to the prophet in this vision, a revelation of what is ultimate. And this is where the, the, the deepest and most enduring reality is to be found. He, he gets a vision of utter stability. Uh, the, the utter stability in all existence and his vision is of a person who rules. In this vision, the windows of heaven are opened and the prophet gets a glimpse of glory. And it's a stark contrast between the death of the mortal king and the immortal majesty of the Lord. And in some ways, that is a problem for, for all people. The problem of finding security in life is the, is the challenge to find something that is solid enough for everything. There's something you can really hang everything on. And finding your security and hope in human rulers and the regime they bring in, or, or, or in anything that passes away and dies, is always going to disappoint. Now Isaiah's attention gets turned away from the death of Isaiah to a security that cannot die. So the vision is terrible. There's a, there's a raw terror to what Isaiah describes there, or, or what he tries to describe. Look at his attempt to describe what he sees. He says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And he tries to get into the detail of what he sees. And what he says is, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the train of his robe is the kind of the, the edge seams at the bottom of his robe. It's like the kind of dangling thread of the shoelace. This is the, the, the most outer part, the, the, the right outside bit. And, and that outer edge is so immense that the whole temple is overwhelmed. And, and Isaiah can't find words to describe anything beyond that. This experience Isaiah has it is it's, it's too encompassing, all-encompassing. Everything in Isaiah's vision shows the distance between God and everything else. God is, is infinite, he's, in, he's unparalleled in his majesty. He is, as Isaiah says, high and exalted. That is, he is he's most high, most separate from all else. 
Now we see the separateness of God when Isaiah describes the attendance to the divine majesty. Verse 2, he, he says, above him were seraphim. Seraphim, I think Isaiah is just saying what he sees. Uh, the word seraphim means burning. He sees creatures of burning brilliance, living fires with wings, flying around. Uh, the fact that they are fires shows that they are morally pure. They are sinless creatures. They fly around. But Isaiah says that they fly around with their six wings. They're covering their faces. And the glory of the Lord is so immense. And like if we were to try and look directly at the midday sun. That the glory of the Lord is so immense that these holy fires cannot look. It's too much. And they cover their feet. Uh, I think it's a way of showing that they are shielding themselves from the gaze of God. Like if we were to stand in front of a blazing fire, we want to put something in the way so that we don't get damaged by the heat to protect ourselves. Now these creatures cannot bear the Lord to look on them. Even in their moral purity, he is too much. And they're flying, flying about, ready, eager to do whatever God commands. See, everything about the seraphim shows the separateness of God. But they're not silent, verse 3. Verse 3 says, they were calling to one another. These holy fires are bellowing out. Verse 4 says, their voices are shaking the buildings. Not talking to God, but talking to each other about God. Celebrating God. It's like if you're at a sports game and something spectacular happens and the whole crowd erupts in celebration. But when you look at the crowd, they're turning to each other saying, did you see that? That was great, that was amazing. That's what these seraphs are doing, flying around the throne of heaven. And what is the amazing thing? God. And then what they're calling out is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The holy means separate, different, other, completely unique and incomparably so. Because that's what God is. God is, is not like anything else. He's creator. The only creator. There's no other creator. Everything else in existence is creature. God alone has existence in himself. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't depend on anything else. God is, is most in everything he is. So far beyond our conception. He's eternal, incomprehensible. He's almighty. He's infinite. He's most free. Most absolute. And as part of his separateness. He is fundamentally separate from impurity. God alone is holy. And the seraph can't say it once, they can't say it twice, they say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. And the Hebrew language of the Old Testament was written in expresses superlative by repetition. Which means, if they want to say something is pure white, they would say it is white, white. Or pure gold, they would say gold, gold. And on one occasion, only one occasion in the whole Hebrew Bible, do you get a threefold repetition. And here it is in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. That the holiness of God somehow goes beyond pure holiness. Beyond, it's more than that. Beyond all comprehension. And the seraphim's praise of God continues from what God is like to how creation relates to the next thing they say is, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Now, holy is what God is in himself. Glory is when what God is is displayed. It's the expression of God's stunning importance and reality. And the seraphs say, all the earth is full of his glory. And what the seraphs are saying in that, they're saying everything in creation, and we can think of it in space and in time, but everything is a theatre for God's glory. That the Lord is ultimate reality. He's that bedrock that is unshakable in all existence, and everything else must find its meaning and its purpose in relation to him. Now, Isaiah dies. The fragility of man-made securities is exposed. But in the vision, we see that the Lord reigns. The enduring security of the God who is most high and all creation that exists for his glory. How does that mean you? I wonder again, what is your bedrock? What are you building life on? Is it the rock or is it itself? I know this vision doesn't end in verse 3. As we come into verse 4, we begin to see perhaps the real problem here. I mean, verse 4. Verse 4. We begin to see that Isaiah's experience of this, this vision of God in his glory, it is not so much a wow moment, it is a woe moment. See, in, in verse 4, the voice of the seraph is shaking the doorpost and the thresholds. It's the entrance to the temple which is being shaken, and the temple is being filled with smoke. Clearly that shows God's presence. But it also shows that there's a barrier. The smoke is a barrier. Isaiah somehow cannot get any nearer. And his response in verse 5 shows as well. His response as he sees all of this glory is to say, Woe to me! His heartbroken sorrow. Why? And he says, For I am ruined. And this vision of God that he's had is a vision that has dismantled him right to the very core of his being. He's taken him apart. He's overcome with a great sense of his doom. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And when Isaiah sees God in his holy majesty, all he can think of is his own death. His death is spread all over his mouth. Unclean lips. And it's just, it's just like you eat a meal and it's been messy and you've got stains around your mouth and you have to go and see someone important and you don't realise. But here so much worse. It's like it's like he's been he's been he's been eating sewage. And he's got excrement smeared over his mouth and dripping, and then he has to go into the presence of absolute purity. It's this going into the presence which brings it out, isn't it? He says, it's the seeing of God. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Because he sees God so clearly, he understands his own sin better than he ever has before. He understands how his lips are the overflow of his heart, and that his heart doesn't really belong to God. He is unclean. And yet, see this thing. See that it's his lips, it's his speech that convicts him. Because in the vision, he's seen these seraphim who are singing the glory of God, they're calling all creation to come and to join in the praise of heaven. 
For all the earth to be filled with the glory of God, the, the seraph are there praising the ineffable majesty of the divine, singing songs of loudest praise, inviting others in. Because the only real meaning to be found in all creation is that all creation is made for God. All of us are made for God. Made to delight in Him and to praise Him forever and ever. And Isaiah sees that. How can he have a part in that? How can he praise God with a mouthful of stuff? He's shut off from it. Can't join in the one thing that he was made for. The one thing that would give any meaning or purpose to his life. He's ruined. And he will perish because of his sin. It's worth saying that if you're not concerned about the sin in your life, it's not because there isn't any sin in your life. It's because there isn't any God in your life. That's what Isaiah shows. But the more we know about God, the more we see how far we fall short. And people who you meet who have an acute sense of their own sin are people who have had glimpses into that's interesting. If you look through history, you look at, at times of revival, times when there's been a great turning to God, a, a, a huge growth in the church. But those times are always marked by a deep conviction of sin. Uh, Tim Keller writes about his own experience of, of a revival, and he comments this. One of his reflections, he says, ordinary Christians aren't usually sad enough. We're not convicted enough about our sin because we don't know God very well. No, no, Isaiah shows that the real problem of security, when Uzziah dies and all the kind of worldly security is shaken, in contrast there is the ultimate, the heavenly security, the one security that, that, that can hold fast forever. God on the throne, God who defines and upholds everything that's real. But the real problem, it's not that we're clinging to empty hopes, it's that we can't build on the only stable bedrock. We can't glorify God and enjoy Him forever because we are ruined in us. Merciful. Isaiah's encounter with God doesn't end in despair. In fact, Tim Keller's quote in full says this. Ordinary Christians aren't usually sad enough or happy enough. Both at the same time. Why be happy? There is just this tender beauty that begins to unfold. Isaiah records it by saying, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. The seraphs who are there doing the commands of God, the seraph is commanded by God to come. And you imagine Isaiah there, he, he's, he's weeping because of his sin, he's, he's broken, and he sees a seraph coming towards him. He'd be terrified, rooted to the spot in his fear. And this blazing fireball of an angel starts to approach him in his conviction of sin. But then as the angel gets nearer, as the seraphim gets nearer, he notices. He notices the seraph is carrying something. A live coal is in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar. See, that altar in the temple was the place where sacrifices are offered, sacrifices for sin. And what that means is that the thing being sacrificed was offered in the place of the sinner so that the destruction deserved by the sinner would be transferred and would fall upon the sacrifice. 
That's the altar, the altar from which the seraph brought the live coal. And then in verse 7, with it he touched my mouth. And the action gets explained. He says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And the sacrifice applied particularly to the place of sin, showing that all that ruin deserved by Isaiah has been transferred onto the sacrifice, so his guilt is removed. And these, these seraphim who sing the praise of heaven and the glories of God, and the same seraphim comes and speaks the gospel to the broken-hearted prophet and says to the prophet, don't miss it. Look at this. See this. Behold it. I want you to know the sacrifice is sufficient for you. The price is paid. Your guilt has been removed. Your guilt has been taken from you. It's on the sacrifice. And the sacrifice has paid the price for you. when we hear that, we, we need to know what is the sacrifice that can do such a thing. If we read on in our Bibles, we come into the New Testament, and in John chapter 12, uh, he quotes Isaiah 6, he quotes this passage we're looking at, and, and then John says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Uh, Isaiah who says Jesus is the Lamb, no, John who says Jesus is the Lamb majesty, high and lifted up in his infinite holiness. This same king descended from his throne of heaven and he came down and he laid himself on the altar. And the sin of his people was transferred unto him. And he died so that all who trust him can hear that gospel message of the seraphim who says, see, look at this, look at the Lamb of God, look at what Christ has done. Look at the cross. See what he endured. Look how your sin was laid on him. And so that all the benefits of his sacrifice are given to you and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now we cannot sound the depths of this grace. Ordinary Christians are not sad enough about our sin or happy enough about what Christ has done with us. But it doesn't end there. Still doesn't end there, does it, in Isaiah 6? But the work of God in Christ doesn't end with the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Peter 3 it says, Christ also suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's what we see here. The immediate impact of the atonement applied in verse 8, the immediate effect is Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah at the beginning is, is calm. Far from God. There's this great gulf separating him and the Holy One. Then the sacrifice of the plot. And the effect of it is that now he is near enough to hear. Near enough enter a conversation with the living God. It's, it's astonishing, this relationship created by the God of glory that he would consult with the man who sins at the beginning. He asks him a question, he invites him into the conversation. 
And you see the eagerness that flows from Isaiah in response. You see Isaiah. And I said, here I am. I'm here. Send me. He leaps at the opportunity. And you see why he leaps at the opportunity? We want to get back to the beginning. To those seraphim singing the praise of God and inviting, calling creation to come and join them. And Isaiah can't join them because his mouth is unclean. He cannot do the one thing he was made for and he's ruined in his sin. But now the sin is taken. Now that his sin has been taken away, he can join the song of heaven and do the one thing he was made for. He can glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he jumps up and he says, send me. I want to go. I want to use my mouth to praise you again. I want commentators with this. Only when a man has been convicted of sin and has understood that the Redeemer has borne the guilt of his sin is he willing and ready joyfully to serve God to go wherever God may call him. You see what that means for us? Now, if we find in ourselves a, a, a slowness to obey God, or, or, or if we find in ourselves that the, kind of, that the mission of God is a bit inconvenient for what's going on in our lives, or something we, we're lazy in prayer, we're, we're, we're maybe more committed to entertainment than to worship, find ourselves reluctant to speak of Christ to our neighbours, or, or, or even hesitating over the... the the call to a radical morality that the Bible gives us. It could be all of that is going on in our lives because we just don't understand what the Redeemer has done with our sin. Too little aware of the immensity of God's grace lavished onto us. Now, if we lack the eagerness of Isaiah, it could be because we just don't get the cross of Christ. If we lack the eagerness of Isaiah, the answer is to go back again to the cross of Isaiah leaps at the opportunity. Do you see what his mission is? See there in verse 9 and 10? That the mission Isaiah is sent on is to go and speak to the people the message of God and they won't get it. Strange. Strange mission. Uh, even more strange, God, God says the effect of Isaiah speaking will be that their hearts get hard and their ears are blocked and their eyes get covered. And, and the reason they're not going to get it is because if they did, says God, then they would turn and be healed. Strange, isn't it? In the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul quote this passage. Uh, I guess kind of showing that that same dynamic happens whenever the message of God goes out. And, and I think we know that, don't we? Isn't that what happens all the time? No, no, even here this morning, right now, here this morning, there are some who are sitting here who have heard the message, the, the message of the gospel, the message that your sin puts you in danger of hell, and the only escape is to acknowledge your guilt and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. You would have heard that message. You would have heard it today. You would have heard it maybe many, many times, and you've done nothing. There may be some sitting here right now. And you've heard that message, but you've told yourself you don't need to change direction. Maybe you've told yourself it can wait until you're a little bit older. Maybe you've told yourself that, that you have a kind of faith and it might not be like others, but what you have will do. Maybe you've just heard it so often you stop listening. 
think we're being told here, the more you hear without repenting, the harder your heart will get. And there will come a part, a point, when your heart is hardened beyond recovery. I mean, we can't really tell when that point is reached, but it comes, and when it comes, there is no return. And if you hear that, and, and it frightens you, and you fear getting to that point of no return, it's because you're not yet there. And there is still time for you to repent and to trust in Christ. But don't assume there will be another time. If you've not repented and trusted in Christ, now is the time to do it. As we, as we look at what Isaiah says here, we might wonder why, why God would want it like this. Especially that, that bit in verse 10 that, that God is sending Isaiah to preach to people who won't listen. They're going to be hardened by his message. Otherwise, they, they, they might turn and be healed. It's just strange, isn't it? Well, I, I think the reason, though, is because God is faithful. God is faithful. You see, see long before Isaiah... God had said to this people, um, said that if the people reject him, he will reject them. Uh, and the land he's given and the blessings he's put on them will be taken from them. The land will vomit them out. It's what we see in verse 11 and 12. But the Lord is going to do what he says. He always does what he says, and he will remove the people from the land. You see, this hardening happens because God has decided these people have had enough opportunity, and it's the end of them. God is faithful. He's also sovereign. You can't read the first part of Isaiah 6 without being impacted by the sovereignty of God. And that's so important when we, when we look at the second part because I think we, we often struggle to realise how deep sin goes. The, the, the problem of sin for people is so ingrained, so deeply ingrained that even when the truth is put plainly before their eyes, they cannot be seen. And when we think about salvation, it's not a mechanical process. We can't think that just as, as long as we explain the truth clearly, automatically people will believe. It doesn't work like that because sin doesn't work like that. Sin is a whole person thing. Every part of the person is tainted with sin, so that unless God opens eyes and gives ears to hear and softens hearts, we cannot believe. And, and that means, then, as Paul says in the New Testament, that that for some, the message of the gospel will be the fragrance of death. And God decides that. And the ways of God are not our way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's, he's sovereign. He's the king of glory. And yet because he is sovereign, then also for some, the message of the gospel will be the fragrance of life. And, and in this passage, which ends in a, in, in a strange mission for the prophet, it's not judgment that has the final word. The final word in verse 13 is a word of hope. So verse 13 says, when, when this happens and the land is ruined and people are taken away, and, and then it says, though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. There's a terrible prospect of what will come when we look at it in the weeks to come. It, even though all of this will happen, but... As the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
The cutting down is not the end. There will be a home to see. That's an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? Now, especially in this chapter. This, this chapter that begins with the vision of the utter holiness of God ends with the sowing of the holy seed, telling us that the God himself will be sown among the decimated people. You, you read on in Isaiah, you get to chapter 11, and you get a bit more clarity when we see that the seed will be born into the line of David. And, and we read on and we find that this hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the holy God who becomes man to take away the sin of the world and to cleanse sinners and to bring them to God. But all of that lies ahead. Isaiah's mission is overwhelming, it's bewildering. He asks in verse 11, for how long, Lord? How long do I have to keep speaking to people and, and, and nothing to happen? He's had a long, long path before him of seeing things go from bad to worse and no one listening. The message is driving people away. That's how his life ends. And yet all of that, all of that is what it looks like for Isaiah to join in the seraph's praise. Now at his point in history, at his moment in life, this is how Isaiah is called to glorify God. He's not sent out to be successful as we might judge success. He's sent out to be faithful. He's invited into the song of heaven, his sin taken away. He can call out the praises of the glory of God, and he does it by listening to God and by obeying God and seeing things go from bad to worse for a really long time. In God's kindness and his economy, that bad to worse is going to lead to the sowing of the Holy Seed and the coming of the Lord Jesus and the redemption and restoration of everything. But for Isaiah, all of that was still yet. So we are made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that may well mean that we are called to faithfulness in a season of fruitlessness. It makes our hearts heavy to hear that. And the sense of that with Isaiah, but he's no less determined to obey. He's determined to obey not because of the success of his work, but because of the grace and the love lavished on him through the Redeemer's blood. It's the same for us, isn't it? We're not to obey God because it will make our lives easier. Not to hold out the hope of Christ because it will make us popular. Or even because we think people will listen. And we do it because we are to be built on the bedrock of Christ. We do it because we want to give our lives for something that will last forever. We don't want to attach to the things that fail. But we want to do everything we can to join in the praise of heaven. And even now, even if that means in our lives, that praise of heaven living it out means faithfulness in a time of fruitlessness. I wonder what all that means to you. I wonder how you respond to the kind of things that we've been looking at here in Isaiah 6. Now we're going to spend a little bit longer responding to what God has said in the word. So we're going to see how Isaiah's experience will help us as we come to this meal together. As, as we come to this meal with the things that we've heard ringing around our heads, maybe with our hearts challenged, we think about how Isaiah considered the holiness of God. 
And because he saw the holiness of God, he saw his sin. And in response, admitted and confessed his sin. And God dealt with that confession by applying the benefits of the sacrifice and assuring him his word. So as we prepare ourselves to share this meal, I'm going to take a moment of silence, and then I'm going to pray that the Lord